Well, this morning, uh, to get started, I'd like to show you something. So I'm going to share my share my screen here. And um, this is amazing. <laughs> this is a vintage Tupperware shape sorter. This is a, one of the greatest children's toys ever created. For those of you who are listening on the podcast right now, you, this the production value on this is something to behold. I just wish you could see it. You need to just stop and Google Tupperware kids toy shape sorter. So many of you might have had these two and you just love them as kids. You, you, you take the shape, you find the hole that it's supposed to go in here. Look, I'll even help you. Do you see my mouse moving here? This one goes in here. There you go. <laughs> this one right here. Where do you think that one goes, church? It goes over there. Okay. I'm being juvenile. I'm sorry. But we love this as kids. Oh my goodness. We loved it. And then our kids had it. And uh, what's interesting to me about this is that as adults, we really don't grow out of our love for putting things in neat little boxes. Is deciding what shape people and situations and circumstances and cultures and societies are and just kind of put them in their neat little places so that we can um, kind of go through life uh, with a sense of, um, you know, like that we understand what's going on. And uh, so there's kind of no end, I think, in, in, in uh, adult uh, life of kind of doing that same thing. Right? Oh, what's your political view? Which party did you uh, vote for last year? Really? Well, I know which uh, slot to put you in. Oh, uh, where did you go to uh, school? What degree do you have? Really? Oh, you don't have a degree? Really? Well, I guess I know which uh, uh, slot slot you fit in. Uh, hey, where's your uh, family from? Where did you where did uh, where did uh, you grow up, what culture are you from or what's your background? Oh, really? That's your ethnicity. Oh, this is my ethnicity. So now I know which uh, box to put you in. Hey, what's your uh, Myers-Briggs, your disc, your Colby, your Harry Potter house? Oh, really? Okay, well, now I know exactly how to relate to you. You know, uh, got it. Now, this way of approaching people and putting them into neat little categories and boxes, of course, has a myriad of problems. Um, the biggest, though, is... Um, that if we do not allow the wisdom of our God and of his word to shape our views, but rather um, we categorize God's word according to our pre-existing views, then that's going to show up uh, in our lives as a huge problem. We started a series last Sunday on justice and mercy, and we're going to continue that this morning. And the theme of justice and mercy, it is, of course, unavoidably political. However, um, God has a lot to say and has always had a lot to say about justice and mercy. And so what I want to encourage you in, in this culture of putting people into neat little categories and, and into boxes, is that justice and mercy are not fundamentally political issues. They are at the core theological issues. And so that I think is very important for us so that uh, we recognize that the real question in the days that we are living in today, um, as we look at the world around us and the unrest that surrounds us, the real question is not how does my political leaning or my ethnicity or my upbringing frame my understanding of justice and mercy. The real question is how does my God frame my understanding of justice and mercy? How does the wisdom of the word of God reframe 
my understanding of justice and mercy. So this morning, we're going to look at the book of Amos. I'm going to read a few excerpts for you. And um, the entire uh, book of Amos is about social justice. And historically speaking, there's two ditches that, um, at least here in Canada, I've observed uh, that the church has made, fallen into. And uh, I'm going back in our, in our church history here in Canada in 1925, where there was a huge shift across our country where social justice replaced the gospel. And uh, acts of mercy, acts of justice, social justice is not the gospel. It can't eclipse Jesus and become the gospel. So that's one ditch. But the, the other ditch is to live uh, in a blissfully ignorant of social justice because social uh, justice, I'm going to define that from Amos 5 here, but justice and mercy uh, is a natural byproduct of the gospel. And so as we uh, look at the book of Amos, the entire book of Amos, what you're going to notice is it's nine chapters and the first eight chapters are this massive nosedive into judgment and guilt. And in the last chapter, by grace, there is this image of mercy for our guilt. So the book of Amos is gospel-shaped. Uh, it begins in, in judgment and it ends in mercy. And so this morning, we're going to look at a few excerpts. Amos chapter 5, <clears throat> I'm going to start in verse 11. Then I'm going to go to a few verses in uh, chapter 8 and then in chapter 9. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, you've built stone mansions. You will not live in them. Though you've planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many your offenses are and how great your sins are. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never failing stream. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And when will the Sabbath be ended so we can market wheat? Skimping on the measure, boosting the price, cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. The Lord has sworn by himself, the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they've done. And in that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and its, its ruins. And I will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that will bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. And I will bring my people, Israel, back from exile. And they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink wine. And they will make gardens and they will eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. This is God's word. Now, here's what's going on. I want to give you some context for God's passionate words here. This is about the 8th century B.C., 
And Assyria and Egypt, the neighboring countries around Israel, they have fallen on hard times for a, a variety of reasons, and they've been weakened for a variety of reasons. And so Israel has control of trade routes at this point in world history, and they have huge economic growth and affluence and wealth. And the problem here that God has is that the wealth did not benefit all the people. The problem God has here is that the professional and skilled classes took very purposeful, systematic, thoughtful advantage of the lower, less skilled working classes. And it created this massive economic gap and it led to oppression and all kinds of injustice and inevitably slavery. If you look at chapter five, which is where I began, you see for the first four chapters, God is angry at all of the nations and their unjust toward the poor. But when you get to chapter five, you realize it's not just those who reject God who are guilty of the injustice. It's the people of God that are guilty of the injustice. What's happening, and the reason why God's tone is so intense, is that they, the, his people, his church, are politically secure, economically secure, and spiritually smug. And so I wanna look at two things from this text, and I'm gonna break it out um, for you this morning like this. The first thing we're gonna look at is the problem of injustice and God's response. And then the second thing we're going to look at is the promise of justice and God's solution. So first, the problem of injustice and his response. If you look at chapter 8, verses 4 through 6, what's the problem? They're skimping. They're cheating people. They're watering down the wine, so to speak. They're sweeping the wheat off the floor, and they're putting it on the scales with the dirt that was on the floor, and people are paying for the dirt. They're ripping people off. It is just this runaway, uh, predatory um, treatment of the poor. It, the text says they're boosting the price. Look at this phrase here uh, in, in chapter eight, it, the, the phrase, you're buying the poor with silver and the needy with sandals. How do you buy people with sandals? Here's how you do it. Here's how they were doing it, okay? With this massive, massive class division, the merchants, the store owners, continually boosted the price so that getting a pair of sandals was, call, was causing people to sell themselves into servitude. The, the, the cost of basic living was so extravagant that this is what the text is getting at. It's poetry, yes, but it's poetry depicting something that was true of history, okay? So it's saying there are people who have to go into debt to go and get shoes, because you continually and relentlessly boost the price. You have to remember, when I say debt, I don't mean ancient line of credit where they got, you know, Assyrian prime plus one. <laughs> debt meant you're a slave now. You got to work until this thing is paid off. And so, and so the, 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 the upper class was essentially ca uh, causing folks to have to sell themselves into slavery. And so... God, of course, is furious at this because the, it's the people of God who are doing it. The people of God left the laws of God. God had laws to guard against oppression of the poor, but they became so obsessed with their profit-making, their pursuit of wealth became so predatory, they, they actually oppressed the poor. Think about it. When they were in Egypt, they were oppressed by oppressors. And now in this tragic irony and this massive influx of wealth into their lives, they've now become the oppressors. 
So God is, of course, angry at, at, at this. God had written into his law to care for the poor. There were laws about, there were threshing laws. You could not, you were not, if you were a landowner, you were not permitted to harvest all your wheat. God put it in his law that you had to leave some, leave the corners so that the poor can go work, give themselves some dignity, and, and you just feed the poor. That, God wrote that into the law. There was a, a law called the, um, the year of the, the Sabbath, and every year of the Sabbath, debts were forgiven. There was a year called the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, people who lost their land for a myriad of reasons got the land back. Now, why would God do that? That blows our modern political economic circuits. But why would God do that? He did it to guard against a generational systematic poverty with his people. That's why he did it. And the reason why it's important for us to recognize why God did this is because <laughs> from our point of view, forgiving everybody's debts every six years is ludicrous. From our point of view, giving everybody their land back every 50 years is ludicrous. From our point of view, life is short. So you fill it with stuff and you enjoy your stuff and you keep your stuff and you work hard for your stuff. And so if somebody else doesn't work hard and doesn't get stuff, that's too bad. They don't have stuff. From our limited short point of view, the, Life is short and you get your stuff. But from God's point of view, life in him is not short. Life in him is eternal. And you don't need all your stuff. You can give away your stuff. There's no shortage with God of the stuff that you need. And so from God's point of view, he, he built these things into the law to foster, of course, because what he wants is a family. He, and he's... he's uh, He's distraught at the way that his family is, is treating one another. His children are, are, uh, are treating one another. And what God ultimately wants is that when we, his children, look on people, we see people. We don't see dollar signs. That was what was happening. When you look at chapter 8 and verse 5. Look at verse 5. Look at what, what he says. This is what they're saying. When will the Sabbath be over that we may market wheat? Right? When is church going to be over? I got other stuff I love. I don't want to be here. That's what they're saying. Look at the text. When will the market be over that we may, mar when will uh, the Sabbath be over that we may market wheat? Wheat. I got to get out of this church service because I got way more important things in my life. I've already given God like what? Like an hour. I've been here an hour. Bread and wine. What now? This dude, this dude won't stop praying. She won't stop praying. This guy won't stop preaching. Land the plane, preacher. I've been here like half an hour. I got to get out of here and get after what I really love, which is going to the market to sell my wheat. That's Amos 5. That's what's going on. And it's just incredible the, 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 the depiction that we get in this uh, poetry here is that their bodies were in church, but their hearts were somewhere else altogether. Their bodies were in the worship service to God, but they had other gods. Mm -hmm. And they were punching a clock, and they were going through religious duty, and they were making sure, I'm here, y'all saw us here? Okay, good, I punched my card, I showed up at Redeemer, get off my back, I go to church regularly. This is where, this is what they were doing. And so what is God's response to this? His response in chapter five is, I hate your church services. I hate your stupid conferences. I know you're bringing offerings, thinking I'm going to bless you, but I'm ignoring them. I need you to know I hate 
you're stupid singing. This, look at the text. I'm, I'm actually softening it, man. Let's unmute Andrew. Yeah, let's unmute Andrew. That dude is laughing like a crazy person. I mean, it is intense. This is an intense text. Wow. This is what God is saying. You're in church singing. I'm plugging my ears. Woof. So after making it shockingly clear what God hates, he makes it abundantly clear what he loves, what he wants. He makes it shockingly clear what he doesn't want from his people, but then he makes it abundantly clear what he does. And this is what he says. Let justice roll on like a river and let righteousness flow like a mighty stream. What does that justice and righteousness look like? What does that line mean? When Dr. Martin Luther King quoted that in his I Have a Dream speech, why did he do that? Did he say it because he thought it sounded nice or did he say it because it was so poignant and uh, of that moment in history and still is in this day that we are living in now today? What does it mean that justice roll on like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream? Here's what it means. In the context of, Am- of Amos, of this entire letter, if you took time this afternoon to read the whole book, here's what you're going to find. If you have the resources and the ability to give opportunity to the oppressed and you give it, that's justice. If you have the resources and the ability to give opportunity to the oppressed and you keep it, that's unjust. If you have the opportunity in a conversation to speak in defense of the oppressed and you use your voice, that's just. If you have the opportunity in a conversation to speak in defense of the oppressed and you stay silent, that's unjust. These are the categories of justice and injustice, not only in Amos 5, but all throughout the entire Old Testament. You can read through this whole book of Amos and through the Old Testament. You're going to keep finding the scriptures are repeatedly linking righteousness and justice. What is that link? Righteousness looks like, in this context, using time and money and skills and voice as a means to bless the community. But to use all of those things to take from the community is injustice. Righteousness looks like aiding the cry of the poor and the oppressed. And injustice and unrighteousness looks like insulating yourself from the cry and the poor and the oppressed. And so here in chapter five and, uh, we, we see this. Many of you are familiar with uh, the word shalom in the Hebrew, the word for peace. Some of you uh, joining us this morning, maybe you're new to the scriptures or new to the Bible or exploring Christianity, and you don't know what that word shalom means, but it, it means peace, but not just, it's a deep word, not just the absence of hostility. The shalom is what God created in, the, in creation. The shalom was what was lost in sin and damnation. The shalom is why Jesus came and brought redemption. And the shalom is what God's going to bring in the end in restoration. Shalom is peace. It is not just the absence of hostility. It is the presence of justice. So biblically speaking, scripturally speaking, here is how the Hebrew culture understood shalom. Here's how they understood it. If you don't have justice, you don't have peace. And you've probably noticed lots of signs and peaceful protests where they're saying no justice, no peace. And I don't know whether they understand the roots of of, uh, that or not. Maybe in some contexts they do and maybe in some contexts they don't. But that is a true statement. No justice, no peace. 
And so, um, and so God, being a God of justice, uh, he says in chapter eight and verse seven, he says, I swear by the pride of Jacob, I'm not gonna, Jacob, I'm not gonna forget this. And that's actually sarcasm. So God's being super sarcastic, and here's why it's sarcasm. Because when in the ancient world, when you swore by something, you swore by something that was unmoving, right? I swear by the mountains, I swear by the stars, I swear by these big, huge things. And what God says is, I swear by the pride of Jacob. He's, I swear by the unchanging pride and depravity of the human heart. That thing that's never going away, I swear by that. He's being sarcastic. And God goes, God goes, I swear I'm not going to forget this. And this whole thing sounds really hopeless, dismal. I can't forget this. Punishment is coming. Where's the hope? Is there any hope? I have good news, church. There's hope. So let's move and look at this hope. The promise of justice and God's solution. When you look at chapter 9 and starting in verse 11, there's this restoration conversation about David's fallen shelter, the David's dynasty. There's this prophecy that a descendant of David will ascend to the throne. This descendant of David, they understood, would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David, right? Christ the king. But he would not be a political messiah. He would be much, much more. And so Jesus Christ lived the perfectly righteous life, the perfectly just life, the perfectly loving, scandalously generous life. Jesus lived that life that you and I could never live, are not living. Jesus lived... um, with that life of perfect justice uh, that you and I are not living. He lived it for us. And then he died an atoning uh, substitutionary death on our behalf. He rose again on the third day, proving that he was who he said he was, that he was God. And that in Jesus Christ, he will, when he returns, bring down all racial divisions, which is why between now and then, we uh, seek unity in uh, where there's racial division. Jesus Christ will, when he returns, bring all healing, which is why between now and he comes again, you and I are agents and ministers of healing. Right? And so in Jesus Christ, there is healing from the restless storm in the human soul because the one who created us recreates us. When you look at chapter nine, the book of Amos closes with this poetic prophetic image that the return of the king and the healing of the world go together. And verse 13 gives us a picture of the healing. It says, the reaper is overtaken by the plowman. What does that mean? Well, think of the world we live in today. We've got the problem of scarcity and poverty and injustice and oppression. But in the restored world, there is such blessing. There is such unity. There is such love. There is such abundance that you're harvesting when it, you're still harvesting when it's time to plant again. That's what that verse is giving. It's a poetic image of abundance. There is no scarcity. There is no poverty. There is no injustice. There is no oppression. The return of the king, it means the end of all social problems. Are you a capitalist? It's the end of capitalism. Are you a socialist? It's the end of socialism. It's the end of all isms. There's no need for any isms because the healing of the world has come. The thing that is it, that all of us with all of our isms are incapable of, of creating for ourselves. And so this is the healing of the world. There's no sickness or death or COVID keeping us stuck in our houses. There's no marches for justice because the justice has been brought. The unity that we crave will be a reality. And the only one who's bringing that is not some political messiah, but it will be Jesus Christ, right? The king. 
And so you and I don't sit in some sort of, you know, passivity, hiding, hiding away in our houses in echo chambers, not getting involved in mercy and justice, but actually propels us as the people of God to seek it in, in, in love and in generosity. Now, maybe you're uh, thinking to yourself, well, there's lots of different religions, uh, lots of different worldviews that promise, uh, you know, their version of salvation. Not like this, they don't. Because if you're a secular humanist, uh, one day the sun burns out and the world is over and the, the universe, there's just no, no evidence of our existence was ever here. And so um, as a secular humanist, you just, you get joy by not thinking about where everything's going. And if you are uh, of one of the other major world religions, your view of the world is that we're leaving it. it that in the end, we, we're out of here. We're a ethereal part of the universe or we're somehow reincarnated and we're moving on, you know, to, to some other, even, even in the worldviews of reincarnation, the goal is to escape the reincarnation, to become a part of the, the great Brahma, to become a part of the, the all soul. So in all world religions, salvation looks like you're getting out of this world. In our Christian faith, the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ means no, there's hope for this world. There's restoration for this world. That's why we're active in mercy and justice in this world. Because God is restoring everything that he created. For the Christian, we understand this thing we called heaven. It's round trip, baby. <laughs> round trip. God is not throwing away what he created. He's restoring all things. And so in this text, what we find is God, the righteous and just judge, he vows to punish injustice. That's bad news, but here's the good news. He poured it on himself. He poured his judgment and his justice on himself. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ did not come to bring judgment. He came and he bore our judgment. He did not show up like a divine general on the top. He came as the poor and the oppressed on the bottom. He was born in a feeding trough. He was betrayed and he was trampled like the poor in the Old Testament were betrayed and trampled. He was betrayed through an unjust legal system. He had an unjust and illegal trial. Jesus Christ was sold for silver. He is not distant from injustice. He was a victim of injustice and he cared so much for the hurting and the poor and the oppressed that Jesus said something very scandalous about Judgment Day. He said, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you came and you visited me. That's, what he's, that's how closely our God is acquainted with oppression and suffering. That's what he said. He said, come and enter into your joy. And then he's going to look at another group and he's going to say, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you, you, you didn't give me something to drink. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. And they're going to say, well, when did we see you like that? Not only, not only the poor and the oppressed in culture, but you see him like that on the cross. We see him like that on the cross, suffering under the disdain of the brokenness of this world. That's how closely our God is not, you know, distant and away from the, the difficulties of these days that we are living in uh, right now. And so it's hard to see that inside a fortress of myopic comfort and will be like those people on Judgment Day going, well, I didn't even see you. I mean, when did I see you? And Jesus' response is, gonna, is an echo of Amos 5, which is, I don't know you. It's intense. Now, here's the truth of the gospel. Nobody is saved. 
by acts of mercy and justice. You and I are not saved through our activism of mercy and justice. But the outworkings of saving grace are that we will desire to be people of mercy and justice, that we will desire to resemble our God of mercy and justice. We live at a time when the cries of the oppressed are constantly before us. And if their cries annoy us, we will do what the people of God did in Amos's day. We will insulate ourselves with our affluence and we will busy ourselves with our increasing so we don't hear their cry. But when the gospel grips our hearts, we won't insulate ourselves from their cries. We will be willing to give our time and our energy and our thought and our voice and our money to help alleviate their cries. We will do that because the cross is a reminder that when we're looking at the poor and we're looking at the oppressed, we're looking in a mirror. The gospel reminds us that we were spiritually poor and Jesus came into our poverty and he became poor and he gave us his wealth in scandalous grace. The gospel reminds us that we were the spiritually oppressed who, as the apostle Paul wrote, were in bondage to sin, but Jesus paid the price for our bondage. He bought us out of slavery. He redeemed us from the slave market of sin and he gave us his generous justice. Thank God for his grace. Let's, let's pray.